We're going to deal with the Feast of Tabernacles a uh, little bit here, but also uh, tomorrow night, uh, remember, please come, because I want to deal specifically with the significance of the Feast of Tabernacles, not only in the future redemptive act, which I think is the last redemptive act of, uh, of the Messiah, but also how it related to the first uh, uh, time that he came. Okay, are you aware that for every scripture that talks about his first coming, I may have said this when I was here before, uh, as important and wonderful and necessary that was to bring salvation, uh, that there are eight that speak about his second coming for every one that talked about his first coming, an eight to one ratio of significance. And I think, you know, it says in Matthew, I think, 16 or 17, that Jesus rebuked the spiritual leaders of his day, in other words, the rabbis, because they missed the clear sign of his coming. And, they, and though they looked for it for 2,500 years. And I really wonder, you know, as great and wonderful and significant and powerful as that was to bring us salvation, his second covenant is even more important. Because he comes to reign, and he comes to stay. So, uh, you know, I really wonder, you know, what kind of a rebuke maybe we might get uh, for having our heads in the sands and not knowing the day in which we're living because of the signs that are all around us. Anyway, it was just a thought. We are moving now to uh, Rosh Hashanah, and let me just say, Hashanah uh, Tovah. That means Happy New Year. Uh, we have begun the new year uh, that began about, uh, let's see, about 15 days ago or more, right? Uh, Rosh Hashanah starts the first year. It comes on the first day of the first uh, month and on the first day of the seventh month of the religious calendar year. Very, very significant time. Uh, Rosh Hashanah comes from two words. Uh, we've got this up here. This is the uh, the Passover begins God's yearly cycle. You see, Passover comes around the third or fourth, which is March, April, which is uh, Nisan Abib in Hebrew. Uh, it's early spring, March or April. It consists of Passover, lemon bread, and first fruits, and then around the fifth month. Uh, you have Pentecost come. Uh, now, the Hebrew calendar, as we're going to see, is not based on the solar cycle like ours is. Okay? It's not the Gregorian calendar. It's the Hebrew calendar, and it's based on a biblical cycle of which God gave them. Now, and then Tabernacles comes about four, three or four or five months past that time, around the 9th, or, uh, 10th, or 11th uh, September, October, our time, depending on the cycle of the moon, uh, and we have the last three, and we're in those now. The new year has started, okay, and we're still completing the month, the seventh month of completion, which is Tishri, and we're in Tabernacles right now itself, which is called the Feast of the Presence of the Lord by the Jewish people, because they believe that uh, Messiah will be here, and he will tabernacle with them during this time, okay? Just as he did in the wilderness when his presence was there in Shekinah. Uh, and he provided every day for them manna, and then on Shabbat they would gather the double, remember? So Rosh Hashanah comes from two words. If we could put that slide up there, uh, and uh, my clicker is still not working. I'm assuming it's the... Uh, Okay. The Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets. Rosh comes from two words. Next slide, please. Head or beginning is Rosh. And Hashanah means the year. Uh, we are actually in the year 5773 according to the Hebrew calendar. 
It's used only one time in the, uh, in the scriptures in the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 40 and verse 1 where it says at the beginning of the year. Now this feast is commonly called the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, you want to switch it to the next one. It's one of seven feasts that we've already looked at. Holy convocations, uh, times to come and do business with God. Now, uh, it's a celebration marking uh, three things. Next uh, slide. Okay. It's a celebration marking three things. One, a spiritual new year. In other words, it's a set time that God has, has put on His cycle that they were to come and have a whole new and fresh beginning with Him yearly. Okay? Now, we know that uh, because of the blood of the Lord that His mercy is fresh and new every morning. And it is. But remember I said, God said, once a year, in grand fashion, remember have a renewal, come back, talk about, recite, rehearse all that I have done in Redemption Story. So once a year, it's a time for to come back and have a whole fresh new beginning and to come again. It's also a celebration of the birthday of the world. Now, as I said, the Jewish people count time all the way back as far as they can to the creation. It's the year 5773, uh, 5773. And uh, just as God created the earth, then not only are we having a new birthday, happy birthday earth, but it also is a celebration celebrating his rulership over the earth. Now, uh, the Jewish calendar, again, goes back to creation. It's based on the lunar system of dating. It's not on the solar or the Gregorian calendar. It's based on the month. Every new moon is a new month, okay? And that's why their calendar fluctuates from year to year, not always on the same month. And as I've said before, Israel has two years within their calendar year. In the spring with Passover starts the religious year. And in keeping with tradition, because the seventh day is holy to God, so the seventh month is holy and completes that cycle, just as the seventh day completes the cycle of the week. Okay? Now, therefore the religious year completes with the seventh month. Tishri also begins then the civil calendar year, the first year. And also, just as Friday is the sixth day of the week, and it's called the day of preparation to get ready for the most holiest day of the week, Shabbat, okay? Then, the sixth month, according to the Jewish people and to Judaism, the month of Elul, is a very special preparation month, and it gives them 30 days to begin to prepare themselves for the all-important seventh month and the completion of God's cycle calendar of the year for them. And so from the time of Elul to the final day of the festival leading up to Yom Kippur, being the most holiest day of all of the calendar year, they have 40 days then, because Rosh Hashanah starts on the 1st, and on the 10th is Yom Kippur. So the 30 days of Elul, and then the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah and the days of all to Yom Kippur, they have 40 days of preparation to get ready for this most holy day called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. Now, let, let me say this. Just as uh, the feasts are called feasts, and they're called festivals, what we need to realize is that not all of them were festivals. Seven of them were festivals, but one of them was what? One of them is a fast day, and that's Yom Kippur itself. On Yom Kippur, for 24 hours, the Jewish people 
will fast from sundown in the evening until sunup. I want to share you something about feast days here and something about fast days. So let me see if I can grab that for you. Here we go. Now, six feast times in God's calendar cycle. One fast time. Now, the difference between a feast day (coughs) and a fast day. A feast day is a day celebrating God's goodness, God's provision, God's lordship, God's unlimited mercy and love. Now, it's a day when the closeness of God and man are emphasized, and on a feast day, the emphasis is always on God and all that He has done for man. Whereas a fast day is a day of remembering man without God's aid. It's man's weakness, his inability to live victorious with God's help. And so during a fast day, man will recognize his separation from God, and so it's a time of placing total reliance upon God for his provision, for his victory, for his healing. And there's only one fast day in all of God's cycle, and that's the Day of Atonement, and it was established by God, and it's still the most solemn, holy day of the year for his people, because it's the time when they are to return. Okay? Return, repent, and release all of that that may have taken place in their life they, they, that they have not already during the year repented. So they may have a fresh new beginning with God, remembering that on the day of Yom Kippur, His atonement was made for them. Okay? So that's kind of what we're looking at here. Now, the Bible calls uh, Rosh Hashanah the uh, Yom Teruah, the day of the awakening blast. And it's a day of sounding the trumpet. Next slide, please. It's a day of sounding the trumpet. And uh, we read this in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 24. Leviticus 23 and verse 24. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the first day of the seventh month, you are to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly, commemorating with trumpet blast. Do no regular work, but present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Now, so it is called the day of the awakening blast, and it begins ten days. Ten days leading up to... Yom Kippur, the most holiest day in the seventh month, okay? And these ten days are called High Holy Days or Days of All. And they're Days of All, and they're in addition called the Ten Days of Reflection. So it's the time when they will reflect back on the past year, And they will admit anything that they believe that they have done wrong toward anyone or anybody or God or even themselves. So it's a day of admitting. It's a day then of repenting and turning from that. And a day of returning to God. Again, to have a fresh, new renewal of yourself going forward with the Lord. And during these days, they will regret their sins, they will ask forgiveness, and they will resolve to mend their ways in the coming year. Again, it ends with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or the Day of Judgment, when they believe that it is on this day that the book of life is opened before God. Okay? It's called the Days of All because the Talmud says, 
which is a collection of commentaries on the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament Scriptures, okay? We have commentaries on the New Testament from men who have studied this for years. Well, the Jewish people have sages or rabbis that go all the way back that have given commentary, whether an exegesis, verse by verse, or whether just an overall commentary of the Scriptures. And so according to the Talmud, the commentaries of the sages, the rabbis of old, man's actions of the past year are judged by God on Rosh Hashanah. Okay? And then on Yom Kippur, the verdict of that judgment is rendered. That's why God looks at them at Yom Kippur, and for ten days they can make a turn. They can regather. And then on Yom Kippur, judgment is rendered, atonement is made or, or given, or judgment is given. Okay? Is the thinking process there. Now, uh, let me say again, uh, next slide. There is a famous rabbi, his name is Rabbi Yochanan. Uh, he quotes in the Talmud the summary of why Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is celebrated. He says, at this time, not just the book of life is opened, but three books are opened for evaluation on Rosh Hashanah. The book of the life of the wicked, the book of the life of the righteous, and the book of the life of those in between. He goes on and he says that the righteous are immediately promised life in the future. Uh, the wicked are immediately condemned to eternal separation or death. And then judgment for those uh, in the book of in-between is deferred until Yom Kippur when a final decision is made as to which category they are to be assigned. Now, let me say this by way of explanation before we just say, oh man, that is totally ridiculous. You know, think about it, okay? We all know people that we know that we know, that we know, they are righteous. And they're going to be righteous. We just know them, right? We also know people, as far as we know, man, outside of a flat miracle of God, these people are wicked. And they're going to be wicked. They've already resigned themselves to that. And so the rabbis say, God knows this. And every year in his cycle... He gives man an opportunity again to come to a place to where he will either turn from his wickedness and say, okay, I do acknowledge God, or he will continue in his righteousness because that's a, a decision that's still firm within him. But we also know that there are those who really are in the throes of decision and they waver. And yet they may have a heart, they may don't, but really they're just really there in between. They really could go either way. And so the rabbis say, at Yom Kippur, that every year there are those that has come to the term of their time. God has given every opportunity. And so therefore, with Yom Kippur, Kippur, uh, Yom Kippur according to their calendar, when all the days was written for them, when as yet there was not one of them, that this has come a time to where God says, this is your last chance. Make a decision. Or that is a decision. And it will be made for you because you have a settled disposition. So that is kind of the thinking process and the theology there of the book of life being opened every year specifically to where people are settled in it, People are, are, are settled not in it, and those are given time that this is the year to make a decision. And we know that happens every year for every one of us. We all have set times when God says, I'm arresting you, make a decision. And we know that we know to know now's the time. I and mean, we've heard testimonies. So this is kind of the idea of what the sages say concerning this time of Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Now, unlike the other major Jewish holidays, 
the high holy days are not related to any specific historical event. Okay, now tabernacles has to do with the tabernacle wondering and everything. But as yet there is not a historical uh, spiritual fulfillment of the last three festivals. Uh, Sister Val, next slide please. Rosh Hashanah is announced by the blowing of the shofar. Not yet on that. Okay? And there are three strands to the blowing of the shofar. It's blown on Rosh Hashanah as the day of the awakening blast, okay? One, it's blown to announce and to honor the kingship of God over all of his creation. Okay? Uh, in other words, the blowing of a shofar on Rosh Hashanah reaffirms God's sovereignty just as the blast of the coronation of a king. So much so that the Jewish people believe that on Rosh Hashanah, one Rosh Hashanah, that the coronation blast will be announced and the king will arrive. Okay? Now, it's also blown to announce the day of remembrance, where the past is recalled, recalled, memories are aroused, the future is envisioned, personal inventories are taken. A time of returning, a time of refreshing. Now, I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but so much of our American Jewish hol American holidays are based on Jewish holidays. We talk about spring cleaning. Where do you think we got spring cleaning from? Passover. Getting, cleaning the house out of all the leaven, the dirt, the dust, and the impurities. It's part of our Jewish heritage. Also, Rosh Hashanah. It's the end of a year, the religious year, and the beginning of a new year. Okay? Where do you think we got old Lang Syne from? It's the end of our year. Horns are blown. We sing what? Should old acquaintance be forgot? Everything's made anew. It comes straight out of our Jewish heritage of Rosh Hashanah. Now, it's also announced, it makes an announcement, the third announcement, it's a day of the revelation of God. You remember at Sinai, the trumpets were blown, the shofars were sounded. It was a symbolic signal to God's people that it was time for a spiritual waking and a cleansing. You're about to come into the presence of the Lord. Cleanse yourself. Prepare yourself to meet God. Now, the shofar originated with who? Do you remember? Where did the shofar come in to be in the scriptures? Anybody have an idea? Do you recall... The story of Abraham and his son Isaac. Do you remember? God told Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, to the top of the hill of Moriah and offer him there. Isaac put the wood on his shoulders, followed his father up there who had the knife. And he said to his father, Father, where is the sacrifice? And what did his father say to him? God himself will provide the sacrifice. And just as he was about to complete his act of obedience, he looked up and a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. And it became a place of great significance down through the ages of Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And that's where the shofar actually originated. As a matter of fact, the story of Isaac is a beautiful picture of Yeshua. A miracle birth at the age of 75 for uh, Sarah and 100 for Abraham, uh, the only son of his father. He freely offered by his father just as Jesus was freely offered. He carried the wood for the sacrifice up the hill as Jesus carried the cross. The place of the hill was on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And later Solomon built a house for God there. 
Now, so the shofar then became used from that point on to signal important occasions that would be carried many, many miles away. And they would blow the shofar from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop, announcing when events were taking place or were about to take place. And at the sounding of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, the following words are spoken. You who are asleep, awake. You who are in a trance, arise. You search your doings and repent. Remember your Creator. In other words, not only He who has given you life, but He who judges life and what you do in that life. In other words, we are held accountable. Okay? Now, Paul alludes to this in Romans chapter 3, um, chapter 13, and verse 11. Chapter 13 and verse um, 11. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And then when you slip over to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5, verse 14, For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Now, the trumpet in the Bible is sounded to announce significant events in the Bible. Uh, in Leviticus, it assembles God's people. In uh, Numbers chapter 10, they blew the shofar to obtain God's help against an enemy. Uh, in Numbers chapter 10, they called God's attention to an offering or to a sacrifice. In the second Samuel, it was to announce the presence of God. In Jeremiah, it was to warn of war or danger. And then in 2 Chronicles, it was to play music. And then also in the New Testament, we know that the trumpet blast is also used for significant events and happenings of which God calls forth. In the New Testament, it announces the return of Christ. What does uh, 1 Thessalonians say? And the trumpet shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and then we, we who, who are alive and remain shall together with them be called up to meet him in the air. It's the trumpet blast. And in Thessalonians, it also says it calls the Lord's elect to come forth. In Thessalonians, it signals the dead to arise. And in Revelation, it is the trumpet blast that begins to signal important announcements and events to begin to take place. Now, the rabbis say that the blowing of the trumpet on Rosh Hashanah was ordained by God for three purposes. One, to raise the dead to newness of life spiritually. In other words, we all know there are times that people get to a lull in their walk with the Lord. And some even get so deep in a trance that it's almost, they almost totally just walk. Okay, The trumpet is blown as a day of awakening blast to say, hey, remember, shake yourself. This is your alarm going off. It's time to return. It's time to regather. It's time for you to repent and have a whole fresh new starting with God again. So it's to raise the dead to newness of life spiritually. Number two, it's to bring to the Lord's mind his covenant, and his promises to his people. So the shofar is not only something that gives a message to us, it signals a message to God to remember his people. And then third is to confound and to confuse the accusations of Satan against God's people. In other words, the rabbis say the blowing of the shofar actually puts Satan on the run. The rabbis also say that the sounding of the shofar is a prayer without words. 
now the first letter of, Rosh, of the Rosh Hashanah is the Resh. And uh, if we could, uh, can you take that off and then bring that back to the same one here in a moment? I want to put this up here. The first letter of Rosh in Rosh Hashanah is the Hebrew letter Resh. Okay? And it looks... Uh, It looks like this. Okay? Now, Hebrew is written from right to left. Okay? Is read from right to left. And notice that with the resh, the right is closed. But left, where you would read going forward, is totally open. Because at Rosh Hashanah, our past can be totally closed to us, but the future is totally open going forward with God. And also the resh is very similar look, look and shape to the, uh, to the shofar itself. It's bent, it's curved, which is like the human heart should be when it's in true reflection, in true humbleness, repentance, and Returning. Now, the before the blowing, the Jewish people will recite in the synagogue Psalm 47, 1 through 6, which exalts God as king, right? Because the, show, uh, the Rosh Hashanah is the acknowledgement of God's rulership over the earth, that he is the king over his creation. But not only that, in the second six verses of, of the uh, uh, Psalm 47, each one of the first letters there of each verse forms an acrostic in Hebrew that spells out the word kerah, Satan, which means tear up Satan. And we know that uh, Satan is the prince over the power of the air. And so the blowing of the shofar then announces and establishes God's kingdom on earth, therefore the end of his kingdom. There are four blasts to the blowing of the shofar. The first blowing is the sound that is called tahiyah. No, 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 you're supposed to wait till I put it to my lips so it sounded like I was blowing it. Okay, takia is one long, loud blast with a sharp end to it. Now, the origin of takia. Takia was blown out in the field with the shepherds. Whenever they would see a lion, whenever they would see a wolf, or whenever they would see a bear, they would blow tahia because it was so loud, it was so sharp, it was an alarming blast, it would scare the predator, and it would save the sheep. So tahia then means it's a warning, it's a call to awake lest you be devoured. And that's what it's saying to us at Rosh Hashanah. This is a call to awake you who are sleeping. Don't be devoured. Remember, your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion going around seeking whom he may devour. And so it's a call for us to awake up. Now, the second sound is <coughs> called the shevarim, and it's three broken tones. Now, it has the idea of crying or sobbing. And the purpose of the shevarim blown on Rosh Hashanah is to warn us of our responsibility to share concern for those who are around us. Now, we do know the Bible says that iron sharpens iron. That we are to stay in contact. 
that we are to stay in touch. And we know that we are to be our brother's keeper, that we're to look out for our brother. Because one, we don't want them to be led astray. We don't want them to be devoured by the enemy. Okay? So you have the Shevarim. The third sound blown on Rosh Hashanah is called Teruah, and it's the word for alarm. Boy, that was pitiful. What, Mars? Down. What down? Oh, is it too high? I knew that. That's about we just do that. Is that okay? All right. So Teruah is for alarm, and it's nine rapid short blasts. And what it signifies is a move to action. Now, in biblical days, it was Teruah that would be used in the midst of a battle to rally the troops. And then it would be blast for them to go into battle. So it is an alarm, a time to move out to action. And then the last sound of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah is called Tekiah Godolah. And it means the great Tekiah. Remember, Tekiah was the first sound that was blown. That was one long sound with a sharp ending. Well, the great Tekiah is blown, and this time you blow Tekiah again, but it's as long as your breath can blow it. The great Tekiah. So all the notes then, when you take them together, you get this. One, get yourself together, awake. Two, be responsible, be sensitive to others. Three, get busy about the battle. Four, stay alert. Don't go to sleep. Remember, the enemy is always close at hand. Now, the, there was a parable that the Jewish people tell on Rosh Hashanah about a, about a king who was lost in the forest. He was found by this old peddler of a man that lived in the forest. The man recognized him as the king Help the king to find his way out of the forest. The king was so appreciative that he took the old man to his palace, took off his rags of clothes, gave him a royal robe, and gave him a place in his palace. The man lived there for many, many years. But one day, the man was totally dishonorable to the king and offended the king with great offense. The king had him thrown into prison, waiting a trial. While in prison, the man realized and remembered where he had first met the king in the forest and all that the king had done for him. Went to the king, repented before the king, and the king then forgave him and restored him back to his place in the palace. That's the essence of Rosh Hashanah. It's calling us to battle, to battle again the last dregs of the will to do our own thing, to live our own life, to go our own way, and not to die to will, and not to take it to the cross so that it can be fully judged by ourselves 
rather than by God. And so that we can, we can abide with him in an unhindered presence as he tabernacles with us there. Now the Jewish people closed the service of Rosh Hashanah with the reading of verse uh, of a verse from Psalm 89. And let me just give you the paraphrase of what this particular verse says. It says, Happy is the people who understand the sound of the shofar, for they shall walk in the light of God. And really what it's saying there is happy the people or blessed are the people who understand the message that the shofar sounds. They shall walk in the light of God. And then... There is the blessing at Rosh Hashanah. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaHalam, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has instructed us to hear the call of the shofar. Now that's to hear so that we're moved by it and moved back by it, that it is regathering time, that it is returning time, that it is a whole new day again for us once a year in grand fashion to remember what he's done and what he's doing. Now, the uh, Rosh Hashanah closes with a particular ceremony called Tashlik. And they will read Matthew, uh, Micah chapter 7 and verse 19 as they take their kids to a body of water. And they prefer a running body of water. And they will give them stones. Because remember, everything of God's festival is about telling the next generation the mighty acts of God. And they will give them stones and they will have them pronounce their sin on a stone. They don't have to say it out loud. They can just say it in their mind before God. They say that to that stone. And then they throw that stone on the body of water, skip it across. They play games with it. And they read, Thou shalt cast into the sea. Okay? And it has to do with the scripture says he throws our sins as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. He throws them into the deepest ocean. And then they conclude Rosh Hashanah with the eating of apples and honey because of the sweetness and the honey that now your life is renewed. Your name is in his book. It's a new day. It's a new year. And all possibilities are before you. And so eat this apple with this honey for the sweetness and the delight and the provision of the Lord in this coming year. Now, I said all that because I want to say this to you. The last three feasts has to do with the second coming of the Lord. Just as the first four feasts had to do with his first coming in fulfillment, he will fulfill himself, the Messiah portion, in his last three. Now, many believe that Rosh Hashanah has to do with the rapture. Uh, many believe that Yom Kippur has to do with his actual second coming. And that Tabernacles has to do with the, the millennial reign when he abides for a thousand years in tabernacles with us here in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. And the reason they say that is when you look at all the festivals of the year, every one of them started in the middle of the month except one. Which one was that? Rosh Hashanah. It started on the first day of the seventh month. Now the way that the Jewish people determined that a new month had started was that the rabbis would wait and there was two men, two to three men, that would be determined as those who would look for the sighting of the moon in the sky, the new moon, the first slither of it. Nothing could be decided until all two, both of them or all three of them had come. Because the Bible says everything had to be determined by two or by three. That's truth. Even the rabbis or the Sanhedrin could not declare the new month 
until not just the first one had come, because they had to wait till the next one. If it was two, or if it was three, until that third one, till all three, or all two, both of them had come, and said they saw it, then they could say, okay, the new month has started. And that's the way they determined the months all during the year. So in Passover, for Passover, Nisan Abib, when they saw the sighting of the moon, and the rabbis determined the month had started, then could they could declare when the feast would be in that month, when Passover would be, because it fell on the 14th. Because now they had the first day established. They could do this for all of the feasts, <coughs> except one. They couldn't do it for Rosh Hashanah. Why? Because it was on the first day. So much so that this feast, during the times of Jesus, became nicknamed. The feast that no man knows the day nor the hour. Okay? Now, let me say this to you. Remember I told you that they would announce significant happenings by the blowing of the shofars from mountaintop, from mountaintop to mountaintop. And they also would establish it by a fire. But the enemy also knew this. So a lot of times they would start fires early or later and everything. And a lot of times then, Rosh Hashanah, which originally was a one day of 24 hours, by the time it went from one end of the land to the other, people had missed Rosh Hashanah. And so the rabbis changed it to one day of 48 hours. In other words, two days. This was during the time of Jesus. And so then they would start and everybody would have an opportunity for Rosh Hashanah. Now, you remember, Jesus' disciples came to him and they said, tell us, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of all things? And he said to them, no man knows the day nor the hour, but my Father which is in heaven. Now, we've taken that passage to say, well, and that and a couple others to say, you know, only God knows, not even Jesus knows, so he couldn't have been answering their question. But, if you remember that the nickname of this feast was the feast that no man knows the day nor the hour. And if you understand that Jesus said, you'll know it by the seasons and the signs of the times. That everything happened in a season, according to the religious cycle of the year. Now, then the Jewish disciples there could have been saying... When he said that to Tim, oh, he's talking about Rosh Hashanah. Rather than saying, oh, we can't know. Because everyone knew no man knows the day nor the hour is the feast of Rosh Hashanah. Now that doesn't violate then though our interpretation of the scripture that says you can't know the day nor the hour. Though Jesus said you would know the season by the signs of the times. And the feast comes in season times. Because Rosh Hashanah was two days, and it was 48 hours. So even if he was answering them, rather than saying you can't know, he wasn't saying you'll know the day or the hour. Because you still, he didn't say what day of Rosh Hashanah, the first or the second, or what hour in the 48 hours. So it doesn't violate that, but it doesn't put it back in a context of understanding of how all the feasts have cycled through now. That every one of them, a redemptive act of Messiah takes place specifically on the feast day in Jerusalem. Precisely concerning his first coming, all four of the first four, why would we think it might be any different concerning his second coming and the last three, if this is God's cycle and his predetermined plan and his order. So I said this to say to you, I'm not saying this is the day, this is the hour, but I'm saying, having understood the festivals, God's calendar of events and his timetable of all the other redemptive acts of Messiah, it makes sense to me that this very possibly could. Therefore, if the sound of the trumpet has to do with rapture, 
then very possibly this could be the fulfillment of that event. If the second coming, he comes back to judge and to atone Israel, then it makes sense that after the rapture event, if it's a pre-trib or whatever, or if it's a mid, and then, then the trumpet's blown a very short time after that, because it's actually five days, then, no, it's ten days, excuse me, then there's a coming back to the Mount of Olives. He judges the nations that's come against Israel. Israel is atoned, and he establishes his reign and rule on earth for a thousand years, tabernacles. So they fall right in line according to that thinking process. So I'm sharing this with you just to say, this is some of the thinking, this is some of the thought, this is some of the study that scholars have done and kind of what they're mulling around and kind of what's being wrestled with in that uh, arena of uh, prophetic academia or whatever. So it's very interesting. Yes, ma'am. There are, okay, you're, you're thinking seven years. Uh, we're saying if Rosh Hashanah and then ten days later is Yom Kippur, that's got to be a ten-day period. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm saying a very short period of time. Uh, I'm not trying to coincide each one of those days of all before the next feast to be a year. Saying the next event that will take place will be on the next feast day, which is Rosh Hashanah, and then Yom Kippur is the next feast day. And it's not a long period of time, such as from the time of Pentecost to the time of Rosh Hashanah uh, is only like five months. And yet we have looked at 2,000 years now since what we consider the outpouring of Pentecost. So I don't think we can equate those 10 days to be specific uh, years in there. We know it's a much shorter period of time than from Pentecost to Rosh Hashanah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Whether, uh, you know, whether it be seven years, whether it be ten years, whatever, it'll be a much shorter time period than the time from Pentecost to uh, Rosh Hashanah, which has been a gap of 2,000 years. But yet the time from, uh, from Passover to Pentecost was a 50-day period. Okay? But that was spelled out. So I don't know what the time frame in there is, but I know it's not a long period because it's only 10 days. So, I'm, But what I am specifically trying to say is that it seems to be, according to God's working of the first force feast fulfillment, that his second coming has to do also with the last three, and they come specifically on those three feast days. And those seem to be the events that are yet to be fulfilled the rapture, the uh, uh, second coming, and the millennial reign. But 50 days were specified between Passover and Pentecost. So, so anyway, I, I, the, the in-between days, I don't have a, a, an answer for there. I, I, my only answer would be that on the feast days, I believe the redemptive act will take place. So we only have to be ready two days out of the year for Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Which? <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> now, if you want to try to play that game with God, go ahead. <laughs> but I think the Bible says... Be not deceived, God is not mocked. 
<laughs> if you want to sow all during the year and then wait for the two years and uh, make it two days and make it right, well, you you can you play that with him. See how he likes that game. <laughs> so that's, but that that's a natural common uh, common thought there. Okay, if you're going to really uh, analyze the thing, okay, they only have to do this two days a year. So <laughs> that was good. Another question. So this is all fun to be able to look at it and begin to deal with it, to be able to, 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 to speculate, you know. But really, while God wants us to know the day in which we're leaving and wants to know us the season determines the times, okay, this is not something that this is where all of our concentration should be. Our concentration should be in the fact that every day we're walking with Him because he has a plan and a purpose he's working out, and he has a role for us to play every day in that plan. If all I am doing is studying prophecy, if all I'm doing is counting numbers and days, then I've gotten off track right there. He wants me to know the times and the season, but not so much that it takes me off track and off walk, because we've been called. You understand what I'm saying? So... uh, any other questions? Uh, how do you combine, you said, talked about entering into his rest, remember? Yes. That we have to be dead to ourselves and enter into his rest. How do you combine that with being very active? When you're entering into his rest, you're led by Okay. Be, okay. <clears throat> how can you, you know, well, I don't think we can equate rest with inactivity. Okay. Rest is a state of mind and a state of our spirit, whereby though we're in the midst of a battle, we're total peace. Okay, and we're at rest with Him, and we know the battle is not His, so we don't need to get ruffled and lose our peace. Matter of fact, uh, Scripture says no man can take our peace unless we give it away. So we can we can have such a walk with Him that we're at total peace. No matter what the circumstance and situation or chaos is going on all around us. And that's what I think the maturation of the Lord, of a moving from uh, uh, imputed righteousness to even actual righteousness, is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. We always have imputed righteousness, but the Holy Spirit comes within us to make us like the Lord. Okay, till our walk in life is such a walk like the Lord that there's actual righteousness constantly being exhibited. Now, it's not our actual righteousness that grants us life in the kingdom. It's the imputed righteousness of what the Lord did. But he's moving us to be like him in his indwelling. No, what the way that I look at this, and Pastor, you're more than willing to jump in here also if you want to, is that uh, Martha, Martha, you got so many things on your mind, but if you would really focus in on what really is important, me, then you find that all those other things will fall into place. She seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. In other words, you'll lose the turmoil by your rest of your presence with Him. So Martha, this is really the most important and the thing that will actually resolve all your worry concerning all those other things. It's what I believe He was saying there. She was serving, but I know a lot of pastors that are driven, self-driven, and I think the more that we walk with the Lord, the less actually we'll actually do. Because he's not going to be sending us all over the place. It's specific assignment for a moment and for a time. We get caught up in the busyness. Because 
even our whole walk is based on what we do, not based on who we are. Jesus said, I want you to be like me, and out of being like me, you will do. So to be is to do, therefore scooby-dooby-doo. Make sense? Okay. Pastor Bill, you want to... I couldn't hear the question. Okay. Because it was directed to you. Okay. She had said, how does Martha's... Uh, she was serving the Lord, okay? Uh, and how was that not being... Uh, why was she not at rest? Or, or the important thing, you know? Boy, that's a, that's a wide question. And... Uh, and I think we, we all experience some of that because in, in our mind, I mean, so many times our value is based upon, our value in this world is based upon what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, that one portion of, uh, of Passover is separating the leaven. And you said that, it, uh, you know, it was easy for God to get people out of Egypt, but it was real hard to get Egypt out of the people. And I think sometimes, whether it's a personality trait it, that it can be, or simply in this world, we draw value from what we do. You know, and you know, honestly, the only time we draw value from who we are, uh, hopefully, hopefully, not always, hopefully, it's simply in the family, where your you know parents love you, love your children for who they are. Not what they do for them, and when it when it when it flips in that and when it flips in that whole thing where parents where children feel like the only way they can get the love from their parents is for is by doing performance things get things get it messes things up messes things up and so I think that's part of Egypt that's a part of Egypt that ha- that we have to get out of that we're accepted in Christ we're His children we're loved. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we're going to, you know, take it, you know, lay down here and wait for wait for Jesus to come. Uh, but it's not because of right works of righteousness which we have done. Okay, but it's because of His mercy and His salvation. He saved us. Okay, and uh, and and in that in that uh, in that place, uh, the things that we do. Don't gain approval, but they, in a sense, they produce. You know, in other words, it says greater things than these will you do. Okay, but you know, there's kind of an interesting little line of motivation there that I do these not because I'm trying to win his approval. I'm God's approval. He loves me. I'm doing these things uh, because mm, this is his will, and I'm his child. And uh, I understand, I understand the, 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 the little bit of conflict, but I like the idea that some of that we, we, we own because the world that we've grown up in uh, says perform. It gives us value based upon what, you know, have you ever heard the statement, what have you done for me today? And I mean, that's a pretty strong motivator because our, our Finances are tied to that. Our our work, uh, uh, our work, our you know how we're going to do well in the business that we're in, um, and sometimes relations because of that marriage relationship, children's marriage, children, it, it's it's pretty it's pretty whacked out. It's pretty crazy, and we, we bring that into uh, our Christianity. You know, we all do to some degree. Stand with me. Let's, let's close with a word of prayer, and we'll come back in the morning. Uh, I'm going to share in the morning um, not so much a sermon as a briefing, a, a briefing of what is going on today in Israel, in the land, as it relates to uh, uh, Hamas and the Palestinians as it relates to Iran and Israel, America and Israel and Iran, and the, uh, the falling dominoes of the Muslim nations. 
what does that have to do with in this scenario of God's end time stage? And how are the Jewish people looking at what's going on now? Because that's very significant. And it will amaze you what's happening in Israel among Jewish people. So this will be an update and kind of a briefing and kind of trying to put a few puzzle pieces together for you that you kind of hear bits and pieces from. So, so Father, we just praise you. We thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, <laughs> that you are a God of order, that you are faithful, and, Father, that you have your plan in place, that you are working your plan, that it is your purpose, and, Lord, that you will complete this, and that, Father, your king will complete all that you have called him to do. And, Lord, that you will complete your work in us because we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. And, Lord, we just praise you now. I thank you for everyone here, for their faithfulness, for their heart, for their commitment to you, Lord. And we praise you now and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.